turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the maiden voyage of The Dan Proft Show. As uh, luck would have it, I'm Dan Proft. You may have heard me on Chicago's Morning Answer, where I do a morning show for the Salem Station in Chicago with Amy Jacobson. I've also had the pleasure to fill in for Mike Gallagher and Dennis Prager from time to time. This is uh, my inaugural show, joining the Salem Network with those venerable talkers I mentioned and so many more. And it's a pleasure to have you on here. As a great man once said, words are the currency of politics. That great man was me. And I think what I meant by that is in the context of policy and politics and discussions of culture, words matter. And so what we're going to try and do on the Dan Prof show is uh, not just take positions like politicians do, but actually make arguments to provoke thought and consideration and perhaps persuade a few people that um, what Democrat socialists are offering at the national level and at the state and local level, particularly in those blue states with big urban centers, just doesn't make any sense for a freer, more just, more prosperous America. And so let's get right into it. Uh, of course, want to start with the attack on the U.S. Em- embassy in Baghdad over the holiday uh, and uh, the response. Let's start with the president's response, the response to this attack, which was report- misreported on so many levels by The New York Times and others, of course, uh, very much in keeping with their reporting on Benghazi to run interference with the Obama administration back in the day, their misreporting on the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad to try and undermine the Trump administration, Uh, this done by protesters, the New York Times reports. It was actually directed by the mullahs in Iran. It was uh, orchestrated by Iranian-connected militias, not organic protesters, any more than the attack on the Benghazi compound was the result of some video. You'll recall the Susan Rice, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama line of bull jive for so many months in the wake of that horrific attack that uh, took the lives of six uh, U.S. Foreign Service officers. No Benghazi for President Trump because the response to the attack was immediate. Scrambling Marines from Kuwait to get over to Baghdad, deploying 750 Marines to quell the attack, which was quelled. President Trump speaking to it on New Year's Eve outside of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, I use the word immediately. They came immediately, and uh, it's in great shape. As you know, this will not be a Benghazi. Benghazi should never have happened. This will never, ever be a Benghazi. But we have some of our greatest warriors there. They got in there very quickly. As soon as we saw there was a potential for problem, they got in, and there was no problem whatsoever. 
Speaking of uh, Benghazi, remarkable the reaction from the uh, leftists and the big government Beltway press corps, the likes of Joy Reid on MSNBC. When the attack on the embassy was launched, she tweets out, as Trump's Benghazi unfolds in Iraq, uh, as uh, one tweeter responded, Trump is flooding the zone in Baghdad with firepower while progressives all but pray for more dead diplomats and service members a la Benghazi. Hell of a way for, hell of a way for resistance media and its sycophants to end 2019. Well, why should they end it any differently than they started it? And 2018 and 2017, for that matter. It is a remarkable, remarkable to uh, countenance what Joy Reid had to say. And uh, just as remarkable because this is a person we're supposed to take seriously, the stones on these Obama-era appeasers. Ben Rhodes, who is, of course, National Security Advisor for time for President Obama, he's the one who uttered infamously, among other things, that the media is just an echo chamber that he created. And here's how you use the media to your effect if you're an Obama administration flack, which he was. It was a remarkable, uh, unintentional takedown of the media, the the Beltway media, and how complicit they were with propagandizing on behalf of the Obama administration. But I digress. His comments, Ben Rhodes' comments, remember, this is the architect of the Iran surrender deal, nuclear surrender deal. Ben Rhodes tweeting out, Trump's sanctions on Iran have done nothing to change Iranian behavior except make it worse. This is what happens when your foreign policy is based on Obama envy, domestic politics, Saudi interests, and magical right-wing thinking. Oh, is that what it is? Or is it more the case that this is what your foreign policy looks like when it's not based on appeasing the lead state sponsor of terror the world over? Is that more what it is? And in terms of Iranian sanctions, those sanctions which haven't changed Iran's behavior except to make it worse, um, one could argue that they are uh, doing that from a position of strength as Ben Rhodes and another – Obama apologist named Peter Beinhart argue, Beinhart arguing in the Atlantic, that uh, now Trump is beholden to you know, Iran, uh, the uh, Iranians' mercurial terrorist attacks. Uh, you could look at it that way, or you could look at what sanctions, the reimposition of sanctions by President Trump have done to Iran, and uh, perhaps come to a different conclusion. Uh, they, they've uh, pushed Iran into a deep recession which, oh, by the way, is fomenting a revolt by the Iranian people against the ruling mullahs, something even Peter Beinhardt concedes. But since the uh, sanctions were reinstated in late 17, the Iranians have seen their GDP growth rate in double-digit negative territory in 2019. Deep recession. Uh, Their... at the start of 2018, just on the oil production, sort of one of their main exports, of course. And at the start of 2018, Iran's crude oil production reached 3.8 million barrels per day. The, the country was exporting about 2.3 million barrels per day. Most of the oil was bought by eight countries or territories that were granted six-month six exemptions when the U.S. Uh, reimposed the sanctions. Um, but by... The end of 2019, there are less than half a million barrels per day in exports, cut by some three quarters. 
So you could also look at this and say, well, the Iranians are in desperate straits, and this is them lashing out to try to get movement from the Trump administration and or to try to refocus their population's attention away from the Trump administration or away from their terrible economy and to the, you know, standard issue, uh, hate America, burning the American flag, burning Trump uh, visages in effigy. So they're not focused on just how bad the economy has become and the by the way their lives talking about the iranian people under this repressive regime that they potentially seek to overthrow big difference big difference uh so you know the dc press corps is talking about trump's rhetorical saber rattling well he did more than rhetorically sable rattle when he uh okayed missile strikes on shia militia targets in both iraq and syria over the holiday uh, he did more than just offer rhetorical saber rattling when he sent Marines to protect that embassy to repel and force the dissipation of that attack, which it did. No evacuations, no injuries. Uh, it, remarkable to me what the left's position is. If President Trump is uh, trying to negotiate with bad actors and rogue states, then he's serving as their Manchurian candidate. This has been the line of argumentation with respect to Putin and Russia, of course. And if he's taking a hard line, as, oh, by the way, he has with uh, Putin and Russia, but in the case of Iran, because all of the Obama-era apparatchiks were proponents of trying to, I, I guess, you know, bribe their way to uh, an Iranian detente, if he is taking a hard line with the lead state sponsor of terror the world over, then he's making the world a more dangerous place. Then he's being reckless. Then he's uh, sounding the drums of war, as it were. They have a very difficult time picking a position and sticking with it for you know, the nature of the problem is uh, Trump's relative consistency when it comes to dealing with these bad actors and their bad actions. And they, of course, their historic inconsistency when it's bumping up the choices they made, the policy choices they made against the rhetoric that they now offer critical of Trump. Uh, oh, by the way, it is worth noting that uh, the one of the uh, organizers of this attack on the U.S. embassy uh, was uh, somebody that was released in 2009, an Iranian terrorist released in 2009 by the previous administration. It's also worth noting that uh, Trump's response to the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad didn't require 29 cables from a career diplomat that went unanswered. This is Dan Prof. You're listening to The Dan Prof. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
This isn't your father's impeachment. This is an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, uh, co-authored by Jeff Shepard. He is a deputy counsel on, was deputy counsel on Nixon's Watergate defense team. He's the author of The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. Very uh, provocative piece that he co-authored that uh, distinguishes the dynamics surrounding the Trump impeachment to those of the Nixon impeachment that uh, uh, could have been, the removal from office that could have been. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jeff Shepard. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, good to be with you. So um, you really provide the important contextual factors in comparing the Nixon uh, imbroglio to the Trump impeachment, the political dynamics, where the economy was, access to media. Why don't you uh, provide that comparison and contrast for us? Sure. Well, we start with the idea that there are eerie similarities between the two men and the two situations, but there are different facts that's going to lead to a different conclusion. But let's start, if we could, just some just reviewing the similarities. Both are classic outsiders winning narrow elections in a hugely divisive era. Uh, and when they came into Washington, when each was inaugurated, they were opposed by every single D.C.-based institution. Uh, uh, at the, uh, the, both are pursued by uh, specially selected, highly partisan special prosecutors. But in Nixon's case, there really was an underlying crime. The issue was whether he was involved in Trump's. There's no crime. There are allegations of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, but those are made up. In Nixon's case, it was a long, drawn-out affair that was largely bipartisan. With Trump's, uh, it's been very quick, highly partisan, and uh, lacks a factual basis. It's really strange. The other uh, key that I I would just mention is in Nixon's case, he was a lame duck. So he wasn't going to run for office again. And when you're a lame duck, other supporters start thinking about themselves and what the next election is going to bring. With Trump, it's his first term. So the Republicans have lashed themselves to his mast. There is no second candidate. There is no alternative going into 2020. So you're going to find an absolutely unified Republican Party. And Nixon didn't enjoy that. Well, the, and the other thing you point out, too, even though Nixon was a lame ducker, uh, deep recession at the time, oil embargo uh, by uh, Middle Eastern countries. And so, yep. so Nixon didn't have the political capital that Trump has with a good economy. Absolutely. And normally you would say, you know, the president doesn't really control the economy. I mean, the American voter thinks he does, but he doesn't. But in both these cases, the president was largely responsible. Trump passed the tax cuts, massive tax cuts, deregulation, and uh, starts putting America first in trade. With Nixon, it was the opposite. He saved Israel during the Yom Kippur War, Mm -hmm. but triggered the oil embargo. He was faced with a recession and and high inflation, uh, and, and his actions didn't help. So it's not a bad economy triggered Nixon's impeachment. It's that he lacked the benefit of a really strong economy, which Trump has. Paul Waldman writing in the Washington Post, could Democrats impeach Trump twice? They might have to. And he uh, says, you know, don't don't dismiss this as absurd. It might be necessary uh, because uh, there may be things that are uncovered. The Southern District of New York, all of these concurrent investigations that require sure. them to vote up more articles of impeachment. But what what does that say about the strength of the articles of impeachment they passed if they're already looking to impeach him a second time to essentially, I would think, uh, make a more persuasive case than they feel they've made? 
Well, it just highlights how weak they know their case is. This is hurry up and get this thing out and we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll get this thing underway. And then it turns out they don't have a basis. Obstruction of Congress is a joke. Uh, th- that would mean any committee that says, I want this, I want that. If you don't give it to them, then they can impeach the president. And I suppose as a technical matter, they could be the American voters not going along with that. That's ludicrous. The abuse of power is the same thing. You can go back to each president, all the way back to uh, George Washington, and there have been stresses and strains amongst the co-equal branches over whose authority and what the, what the limits are on their authority. Everyone's been accused of abuse of power, but not impeached over, over what amounts to nits. I mean, a presidential phone call to the guy in the Ukraine or uh, not responding to a uh, thoroughly enough to a congressional subpoena. Those are, those are laughable. And the Democrats know it. That's why Pelosi is slowing this thing down. It's why there's talk of, well, we can do more, we can do better, we can do more. But they're whistling past the graveyard. Well, yeah, and it, I, I, I mean, and, and just to continue uh, the tortured arguments that are being made, really shameful arguments. Neil Cattell, who is a Obama's solicitor general, tweeted out that, you know, Trump's uh, obstruction of Congress charge, you know, he, as you were describing, he didn't comply with what the demands were. I mean, the point, he, this is a former solicitor general of the United States. It was, it, it was Trump's right to exert executive privilege and the Democrats' choice not to litigate the matter in court where Trump might have won or he might have been kel- compelled in part or whole to produce what they desired, but they chose not to do so. And I mean, would Neil, would Neil Cattell uh, tell his clients not to apprise, not to assert their rights in his representation of them? Of course not. It's just so in it's so transparently of, in shameful. Of the, uh, ain't it horrible uh, attitudes of the other side? Trump has always obeyed the laws. Trump has always complied with judicial orders. Uh, in this instance, it was Congress that didn't want to roll the dice. You're absolutely right. They just said, oh, we don't have to do that. We'll impeach him. What's so intriguing, if you were there before, that's the third article of impeachment against Nixon, was failure to adhere to a uh, congressional subpoena. And the second article was abuse of power. The only one missing in a comparability analysis is obstruction of justice, which is really the main charge against Nixon. Right. And that's what they thought the Mueller report would bring in. And it didn't. But they're not giving up on that. You went, when you went through, well, maybe next year, maybe next year, maybe next year, they're really hoping that they can get access to grand jury testimony served up by Mueller's staff in that report that has to stay secret, and they want to leak that out and say, oh, see, obstruction of justice, this changes everything. But the public is watching this, and it's kind of like, well, we, we, we hold on to this, thin read, and then we jump to that thin read, and then we jump to the next one, and they realize none of this is serious. Every single thing that's going on today, every single allegation is designed for its impact on the 2020 election. Maybe it doesn't matter whether it's uh, open witnesses or the president's counsel gets to participate or whether Nancy sends over the articles. Every single person in Washington, D.C. makes a calculation every single day on the perception of fairness to their constituents that's going to come out in the 2020 election. And it's even the safe districts aren't certain because of the American perception of fair play. Americans expect a fair deal. The Republicans are winning this massively because the Democrats are not giving them 
a fair deal, and it's reflecting. You trot out all these Democrat experts, like the uh, Solicitor General, and they're ruining their own. They're ruining their own uh, reputation. Uh, reputation. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, a cut and paste job, as you're saying, and then we'll work backwards to try and find the evidence to support it. He is Jeff Shepard, Deputy Counsel on Nixon's Watergate defense team, author of The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. And you want to check out his piece in the journal, This Isn't Your Father's Impeachment. Jeff Shepard, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. My pleasure. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The Democrat Socialists have a real problem in 2020, and it's the U.S. economy and particularly Americans' attitudes towards the economy. Three-quarters of Americans uh, think the economy is good, and they're optimistic that it will continue to be good. And why not? Richard Ron, writing over at the Washington Times, uh, he's the chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth, free market, supply-side economist, made a bit of a name for himself during the Reagan era. He uh, notes in his piece, the United States, there are more jobs than workers. Wages for all groups are rising faster than prices. What's particularly remarkable and a very good sign is that wages for the lowest income and least skilled are rising faster than other groups. Uh, he uh, talks about uh, uh, the rising incomes across the board. I mean, Steve Moore wrote about this about a month before the new year. Uh, you have uh, middle-income families saying real five thousand real dollar uh, uh, household income increase to the tune of more than five thousand dollars in the first three years of the Trump administration. That's that's substantial when the median household income is, you know, mid fifties, fifty-five grand. So ten percent increase in real take-home pay is a real big deal. Uh, as Ron continues, the real wealth and well-being of the vast majority of Americans have risen faster for the past three years than almost any time in history. The grumpy old naysayers are obviously wrong. Pay no attention to them and count your blessings. Indeed. Uh, so how do you mau mau an economy that's going this well. In addition to that, the one area where there were have been jitters for three years, particularly among free marketeers like Richard Ron, like me, has been trade policy and the trade war, not just with China, but the tariff exchanges back and uh, back and forth between a number of countries, uh, the tax increases, which reduce the purchasing power of Americans. Uh, concern, disagreement with President Trump over that policy, but as we uh, enter a new year, uh, Peter Navarro, who's one of the lead advisors for the president on trade, not necessarily a huge fan, but it's difficult to argue with where America finds itself three years in the Trump administration when it comes to trading with uh, allies and adversaries alike. Uh, don't forget, we signed the Epic uh, Japan deal. That's $7 billion for our farmers. Uh, we renegotiated the South Korean deal and we got Canada and Mexico, which is twice uh, the volume of trade as China and five times the exports. That one's sitting on uh, Mitch McConnell's desk, uh, ready to go to the floor of the Senate. Uh, and next year, yeah, 2020, we're going to uh, try to get something going with Great Britain, 
uh, Vietnam, Europe, uh, and anybody else who wants to uh, fairly trade with the United States of America. Yeah, a phase one deal with China on, to, to be signed on January 15th. That's certainly a good start to the new year, whether or not you think it's particularly enforceable, whether or not you think you can really trust the Chinese when it comes to intellectual piracy and onboarding of other people's technology, mainly the technology of American companies. Uh, the idea that we're moving away from tit-for-tat tax increases, that's good news for economic growth. And what is the left offering? Remarkably, some of the same tone deafness that Hillary Clinton offered in 2016. Very cavalier about the lives and livelihoods of others. Right. This is a party that wants to deindustrialize the American economy. This is the party that is lecturing people about the jobs they're not going to have anymore, shouldn't expect to have, and they better adapt or die. And Joe Biden just did this over the holiday at a town hall, a Biden town hall in Derry, New Hampshire. He uh, he's saying saying this about uh, coal miners because, you know, Biden has signed on to all of this transform the American economy, run the world's biggest economy on windmills and solar panels and switchgrass. He said this about coal miners that may lose their jobs, not dissimilar to what Hillary Clinton said four years ago that necessitated uh, Joe Manchin intervention in West Virginia to sit down with coal miners to uh, try to uh, rescue Hillary Clinton from herself and the Democratic Party by extension. Joe Biden saying anybody who can go down 3000 feet in a mine can sure as hell learn to program as well. So, hey, coal miners, learn to code or die. You know, there's a flip side of this, too. Sometimes conservatives and Republicans are a little bit tone deaf. You know, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Well, guess what? Not everybody wants to be a coder. And uh, to be so dismissive of people's lives and livelihoods, particularly when they've been doing something for a long time, when perhaps they're not in a position as a 55-year-old coal miner, they want to go take a class at the community college and try to compete with the millennials to code. But when it comes to minimum wage laws in places like Seattle that servers don't want, uh, the uh, war on freelance work in California, or the attack on uh, individuals and chief executives of fossil fuel companies, this is what the left's offering. And Trump is offering a dynamic economy. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. Some interesting op-eds from those less inclined to be supportive of individual gun rights in response to the uh, heroism of Jack Wilson at the uh, church white settlement texas taking down a church shooter who had murdered two of jack wilson's fellow congregants with one shot from about 50 feet away across the room now this was a firearm instructor and he's actually a candidate for county commissioner down in tarrant county this is and his campaign slogan make sure your vote is on target i only fired one round and it was you know the only shot i had which you know was a headshot which you know in my classes i'd teach not to take headshots 
but you know that was what I felt. You know that's the only shot I really I had a clear shot, and I was comfortable taking the shot. He's a cool customer, no question. Uh, I like the fact that both he and the minister there talked about uh, evil. There is evil in this world. Uh, also, uh, we find out that the shooter was known to the church that he had actually been fed by the church before, and he was apparently upset uh, that uh, the. Uh, church leadership there had refused his request for money. Uh, the shooter also was ruled mentally incompetent to stand trial in 2012. So known quantity again. And it's worth pointing out, Jack Wilson also was the the lead for security for the church. But there was at least a half a dozen other congregants that were carrying as well. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Lott, Jr., president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, author of a number of books, including The War on Guns and More Guns, Less Crime. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. And so the arguments that, hey, look, uh, it was great what Jack Wilson did, but that speaks to the need to have perhaps an individual trained uh, in, in places like soft targets like churches or schools. But it certainly doesn't justify just random congregants uh, carrying weapons. On our website at crimeresearch.org, we have literally dozens of cases in just the last few years where people with permanent concealed handguns have stopped what otherwise would have been mass public shootings, just as uh, happened at this church near Fort Worth. And they worked out well. You know, the types of concerns that were raised by uh, gun control activists, advocates such as, you know, maybe they would shoot somebody else, or maybe uh, when the police arrived, they would accidentally shoot the uh, wrong person. You know, are those types of things possible? Sure. But the point is, is that in none of the cases where people have used their permanent concealed handguns to legally stop one of these attackers have either of those concerns that were raised actually occur. It seems to me if you can point to dozens of cases where what would have been a mass public shooting was stopped by these civilians and they're successful and you can't point to a single case where the types of problems that they're concerned about have happened, it doesn't seem to me that you're going to want to put a lot of weight on the types of concerns that, they, that they're that raising. Now, the other concern raised, one of the other concerns raised uh, to try to, uh, you know, muddle the issue a bit, to say, oh, oh, yeah, Jack Wilson, good guy with a gun, but you still had a bad guy with a gun, and that speaks to our gun culture. How did the shooter obtain uh, a weapon? And don't forget, there was a bad guy with a gun, and this speaks to guns, the omnipresence of guns. Sure. Right. Well, you know, the problem is it's pretty hard to stop bad people from getting guns. The major source, for example, I mean, we, we know that this person illegally obtained the gun. The major source for uh, illegal guns are drug dealers. It's as hard to, you know, it's as, let's put it this way, it's as easy for a criminal to obtain a gun as it is for them to obtain illegal drugs. If you think that we've successfully stopped people from obtaining illegal drugs in this country, you know, I wish I wish we were able to go and stop them from being able to do that. And the problem that you have is that if you go and you ban guns from, you know, these areas there, uh, who would have been the only person that would have had the gun then in that case? It would have been the bad guy. And guess what? If you have only the bad guy having the gun, uh, what do you think is going to happen? Right. Now, in uh, New York State, this is rather interesting. There's a story in the Post about uh, Jews taking a self-defense class after the Jersey City kosher market shooting. 
Right. The, but the self-defense class administered by a former NYPD officer and martial arts expert is showing Jewish people how to throw axes as a counterterrorism measure. Um, but it's it's it just strikes me as remarkable now, particularly now thinking about this after the machete attack at the synagogue in uh, Monse, New York. Boy, um, an axe unarmed at all together so that you could be susceptible to somebody wielding a knife or a machete, as was the case in that synagogue attack. What is it? What's the psychosis people need to get over to say, I'm going to 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 be trained on another inanimate object, not an axe, but a gun, because that's the great equalizer. So I'm going to become proficient where I feel comfortable so that I can defend myself, my loved ones and others. I just the axe throwing class just is remarkable to me as a response to the Jersey City shooting. Right. Well, um, you know, we don't have police officers going around carrying axes to go and (laughs) try to defend themselves. There's a reason why police think that it's a lot more effective for them to go and have guns for self-defense. And uh, what are you going to do if, you know, the attacker there is able to go and get a gun? Do you really want to go and take a, an, an axe to a gunfight? My guess is the answer is no. My wish is I wish that in that knife attack that was uh, occurred in New York against uh, the Jews there, that uh, one of them had been armed. And, uh, you know, the thing is, my guess is the entire gun control debate would be very different if stories like this case in, in Texas got more attention. The, the, the thing that's unusual about this case in Texas is that it got national news coverage. Yeah. The other cases, as I say, I can give you dozens of dramatic cases that just don't get news coverage. And the last five years, I can only think of two other cases that got any national news coverage where a permit holder stopped what would have been a mass public shooting. Even though Jack Wilson and what happened in White Settlement, Texas, got national coverage, Reuters got it wrong, too. Reuters reported that the shooter owned a, a range and was trained and, 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 and trained other people in firearm use. And in point of fact, of course, it was Jack Wilson that owned the range and trained. So 180 degrees wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, it's embarrassing. But one of the reasons why I think that this case was unusual in terms of getting coverage is that Jack Wilson was part of security. And they, you know, he, and obviously he's just a volunteer, he wasn't getting paid, it was just, that's what happens in a lot of these churches. They just say, well, you know, you have a concealed security permit, we'll make you, uh, we'll make you our, our security force. The website is crimeresearch.org for more of these stories, crimeresearch.org. John Lott, Jr., President of the Crime Prevention Research Center. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Dan Proft back with you. Uh, 2020, huge political year, obviously the November 3rd election. In addition to that, the 2020 census that will determine the next congressional reapportionment uh, seats in 2022. And uh uh-oh, oh no. Look out. Uh, Frank Lunds, pollster reporting. New York is expected to lose a House seat after the 2020 census based on the uh, uh, initial estimates that were released recently. And state Democrats are looking to draw out one AOC's district. She may be back schlepping drinks before you know it. 
uh, AOC, not so popular within New York left or Democrat Party uh, circles as she is among socialists and Bernie bros the nation over. So very interesting. And the other thing that's interesting about this is uh, the exodus from blue states. Uh, the uh, using the Sean Trendy over at uh, RealClearPolitics.com did a little bit of uh, back of the envelope uh, formulating, and uh, he's estimating that Texas should gain three congressional seats, Florida should gain two, North Carolina, Colorado, Arizona, Montana, Oregon should each gain one. So that's uh, one, two, three, four, five red states, one sort of purple state and one blue state that are gaining seats with uh, two pretty solid red states in Texas and Florida gaining five a total. Uh, And uh, meanwhile, some of the Rust Belt states like the one from which I hail, Illinois, uh, as along with Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Rhode Island should each lose a seat. Illinois may lose two. It'd be really interesting. Uh, Illinois, by the way, uh, the decade of the decade that just passed, led the nation in out-migration, losing population for the sixth straight year, lost more residents than any state this decade. And this is something that's happening in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and even California now, where illegal immigration can't keep up without migration. Terrible public policy, and there's no bigger indictment of a state than uh, a place that people say, I want to be here. I just can't make it make sense to be here anymore. And that's certainly what's happening in Chicago, which I know very well since I'm a resident of Chicago. And uh, it's it's happening all over California as well, New York City. And it's sad because these are great cities that have been destroyed by politicians. Uh, but it, it's going to change the political landscape and the balance of power, too, away from some of these big blue states with big urban centers may change the composition even internally. Sean Trendy pointing out that in Illinois, they're going to have a difficult time. We've losing one or two congressional seats, keeping the three majority African-American districts that uh, Illinois currently sports that are held by Danny Davis, Bobby Rush and Robin Kelly. The same cartography challenges are going to visit Democrats in these other states as well. No bigger indictment. No bigger indictment of terrible public policy than people fleeing a state that they otherwise want to stay and leaving relationships behind. Dan Proft on The Dan Proft Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, and uh, over the holiday, we uh, mourn the loss of uh, some seminal figures in sports. Don Larson, the only man to ever pitch a perfect game in the World Series, 1956 Yankees, of course. Former NBA Commissioner David Stern. But uh, when it comes to culture and cultural critique, we should be mourning the loss of Gertrude Himmelfarb, 
if you're not familiar with his wor- her work, I should say, uh, you can get familiar. Commentary Magazine, where she often wrote, uh, posted a list of some of her uh, best essays, um, in addition to checking out her work, The Demoralization, The Demoralization, D hyphen, moralization of society, the roads to modernity. Give me an example of uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb's observations. Today, uh, she once wrote, the very word stigma has become odious, whether applied to dependency, illegitimacy, addiction, or anything else. Yet stigmas are the corollaries of values. If work, independence, responsibility, respectability are valued, then their converse must be devalued, seem as disreputable. That's something she wrote uh, almost 30 years ago, certainly could be applicable today for a more on this topic of culture and where we find ourselves as we start the new year. We're pleased to be joined by Rod Dreher. He's a senior editor and blogger at the American Conservative, author of several books, including How Dante Can Save Your Life and The Benedict, Benedict Option. Rod, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure being here. So um, just thinking about uh, Gertrude Hibblefarb's contribution to scholarship as it pertains to culture, uh, I just want to get, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, of course, and I just wanted to give you sort of an opportunity to comment on her passing and what her work about uh, Victorian England and 20th century America, uh, the roadmap it gives us for conversations that are uh, happening in real time in 2020. Well, she was a, a real giant uh, on the conservative side, certainly, and beyond conservatism. I think about her book about the remoralization of British society in the Victorian era and how it teaches us that we are not fated to decline permanently, that if enough people have enough vision and will to see that vision executed, that we can turn things around. And that, believe me, I'm, I'm someone who, who really is down, uh, downcast about the condition of our own moral situation here in the United States. I think now I should probably go back and reread that B. Hemelfar book to, uh, to get my hopes back up. Yeah, right. I mean, I, one of the observations she uh, offered, paraphrasing uh, Lord Acton, was liberty also corrupts and absolute freedom tends to corrupt absolutely. I think that's a, a idea that's lost on both parties in the 21st century, the idea that there is such a thing as restraint, that absolute liberty, which uh, uh, is often confused for libertinism, is not freedom. No, it's not. And we tend to think that freedom is the absence of restraint. In fact, the older, more classical definition of freedom is freedom for something, freedom for virtue. And uh, we live in a culture now, and it's look, it's just as true on the right as on the left, mm. that uh, that values that newer conception of freedom. And our economy does this to us as well. The, the economy, which, uh, which emphasizes choice and more uh, in all cases, that is a, a really effective catechizer of the next generations for how to look at themselves and how to society. Uh, you uh, speaking. You were, you were describing yourself as a pessimistic about the uh, future of American culture. Um, yeah, clearly, uh, you wrote a piece for Spectator.us. The culture war is lost, and uh, you uh, singled out uh, Chick Fil A's surrender to the left as a significant uh, loss, even if it was only symbolic. 
No, it was a well, it was a symbol, but that symbol was very potent. I I thought it was so important because Chick Fil A, for better or worse, and whether it was fair or not, Chick Fil A was seen by everybody in this culture on both sides of the culture war as uh, a holdout to toward against political correctness. Uh, We all know what they've been under from the pressure that Chick-fil-A has been under from activists for so long, gay activists. And they held out. They did not back down. And meanwhile, they managed to prosper incredibly. They became the number three fast food company in America despite getting all this bad press. And yet they still folded. Uh, to me, that if Chick-fil-A can't even hold out, even though it's succeeding brilliantly at what it's doing, then what hope is there for other companies? Yeah, and uh, the, the the Chick-fil-A matter, um, the, the, it seemed to be uh, Franklin Graham's intercession notwithstanding. It seemed to be that they made a business decision that if they wanted to get access to overseas markets – then they needed to uh, basically fall in line or fall closer in line to the left. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And uh, for Chick-fil-A to have accepted, by virtue of this uh, of this corporate decision, to have accepted that the Salvation Army of all organizations is therefore a bigoted organization, and that, that is incredibly demoralizing to cultural conservatives and Christians. But I think this is this is how things go when when people and companies and when individuals value the economic bottom line more than moral principle. This is what you see. And I'm afraid that we're going to see this happen more and more. I, this book I'm working on now, which is about the warnings that I, I've been hearing for the past few years from people who grew up in the Soviet Union or, or in the Soviet bloc and who now live in, in the West – They've been warning me that they're seeing more and more things that remind them of life under communism happening here. I've just spent most of this the past year interviewing these people, both in this country and abroad. And uh, this kind of thing we're seeing from Chick-fil-A, it's a small thing and it's happening in capitalism. But this demonization of any point of view that contradicts the the, uh, progressive narrative, we're going to see more and more of it. Well, and the surrender to the demons, uh, as you're suggesting, too. Even people who are willing to go along silently, even though they know what they're going along with is wrong. Yeah, that's true. We're lacking cultural courage. And look, I'm a conservative, but I looked Washington and I see such cowardice on the part of the Republican Party on these issues. Back in uh, it was 2015, I think it was, when Obergefell was decided, uh, I went to Washington to give a talk on Capitol Hill with to some Christian staffers Republican staffers. And when it was over, I said, look, we lost, my side lost the gay marriage fight at Bergefell. But uh, what are you in Congress, you Republicans, doing to help protect the religious liberty of Christians and other Americans who dissent from Bergefell? Nothing. They said nothing. It was quiet. Now, that's when I realized that we, people like me, we really are on our own. The Republican Party will not offend its donor base by taking a stand for something as unpopular in America today as religious liberty. Well, I mean, and, and to the point, I mean, one of the seminal cases of the decade uh, and uh, underscoring the importance of who the president of the United States is and who the Supreme Court justices he nominates are and so forth 
the Masterpiece Cake Shop case out of Colorado, Jack Phillips, and it wasn't uh, political leaders that rallied to Jack Phillips' defense and, and the defense of others who are similarly situated, but it was uh, nonprofit organizations, advocacy groups, uh, nonprofit organizations like the Alliance for Defending Freedom and advocacy groups, conservative grassroots advocacy groups. Uh, there's not really any uh, cover being provided by any organized party beyond that. No, there, there really isn't. Uh, they, they are terrified of being called bigots. I mean, I know what side the Democratic Party is on, and it's not mine, but I think about my own side, the Republicans, why they can't seem to raise their voices in, in any substantive way. That said, I, I mean, I'm going to continue to vote conservative, not only out of conviction, but because I would rather have the people who uh, don't really want to come out and support me than the people who actively oppose me and, and the liberties of my people. But uh, it's just a really sad state of affairs. And I, I've been encouraging for years my fellow conservatives and Christians to prepare ourselves for the long haul, that this is not going to be a situation that gets better anytime soon. And uh, we have to prepare to live as if we were under a, sort of a culture war occupation. I I want to tackle a couple of more topics with you, if you'll indulge me. Can I hold you over and we'll we'll come right back to you? Sure. Talking to uh, Rod Dreyer, senior editor and uh, blogger at the American Conservative. Uh, We'll be right back. Back with Rod Dreher, senior editor and blogger at the American Conservative, author of several books, including How Dante Can Save Your Life and The Benedict Option. And, uh, Rod, you had mentioned the Obergefell decision, the redefinition of marriage. And uh, I remember when that uh, battle was going on. I mean, it seems like a lifetime ago. It was like six years ago. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so many conservatives or conservatarians I think of a lot of the National Review folks like John, Jonah Goldberg saying, hey, you know, let's just give give uh, gay people civil unions and then we'll just and we'll call it a day and then we'll have agreement and we won't have to deal with this issue. Totally uh, and surprisingly ignorant of what the real play was by the postmodern left with respect to the redefinition of marriage. And so now that we get the story uh, this week out of England where a couple of sued and they won to uh, a heterosexual couple to redefine civil unions so that heterosexual people can be civilly union rather than married in England because, of course, marriage is a patriarchal institution and they don't want to be considered married. They want to be civilly union. So we went from uh, 15 years ago, all the postmodern left wants is civil unions, not to redefine marriage, to the redefinition of marriage, now to the redefinition of civil unions. Uh, so what was sold as a way to protect marriage will actually now instead potentially replace marriage. Well, a lot of us saw this baked in from the very beginning. It is just breathtaking how fast the, the lies that were 
wrapped around this issue to sell it to the, the general public, how they're now becoming clear. And, uh, and yet we don't see people putting their foot down saying, wait a minute, maybe this has gone too far. You probably saw recently in England, there was a, a woman, a feminist, Maya Forstatter, who yes. had uh, said that she was against the idea that a male could become a female. She said that she would treat transgender people fairly and respectfully, but she would not be made to say that males can become females and vice versa. She lost her job, went to court, and the judge said that someone with her opinion uh, does not have a place in a democratic society, or rather that opinion has no place in democratic society. This is how far it's gone. And then, and then, not to interrupt, but then J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, rallied to her defense on Twitter as a feminist, and she got, you know, subsumed by all the blue check Twitter mafioso types that are, you know, full on for the trans movement. Right. And the New York Times, their piece they published about this whole conflict was by a trans person who talked about how J.K. Rowling yeah. had hurt her and bruised her and betrayed her. I mean, it's madness. And I keep wondering, what is it going to take for ordinary people to stand up to this sort of thing? But it keeps, they keep pushing the boundary further and further and further, and nobody stands up. I don't know what people are so afraid of. Well, I mean, I, isn't it the same dynamic? It's just a new front, uh, perhaps the final frontier. Uh, the same dynamic. I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to be no. called a bigot. I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be targeted. I don't want them to come for me. And so... If I just uh, keep my head down, then maybe they'll never get to me. Yeah, that's that's absolutely what it is. But when it gets to the point when you're losing your job for not affirming that two plus two equals five as in 1984, I mean, you know, it's crazy. But we're going to hit the wall eventually on this stuff, and people are going to have to take a stand. I tell you, when I have traveled throughout the former Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc this past year talking to these people, some of whom – went to the gulag for their beliefs, and to hear the warnings that they are giving me to give to the American people about this ideology that they see rising up now and how much like communism it is, this crazy gender ideology. I think I'm hoping that my book, which will be out later this year, will be a real wake-up call to people that this is not just one of these things. This is something upon which our civilization could be broken. Uh, Two headlines that ended the calendar year 2019 that I thought encapsulated the year in culture. Transgender man gives birth to non-binary partner's baby with female sperm donor. And then transgender mother says her pregnancy did not make her less of a man. (laughs) (laughs) You need a scorecard. I have not heard that second one. Yeah. Calculus uh, uh, theorems are easier to prove. You know, what's so interesting about this is what it says most deeply about our relationship in reality in the late modern age. The idea that we can, reality is whatever we say it is. That's that's exactly the the core of totalitarianism. If you read 1984, Orwell's 1984, a lot of us read it in high school, but maybe forgot about it. But it's so interesting to go back and reread that book today and realize that what the party, the, the totalitarian party in that book, claimed was its, was its uh, core right, was the ability to define reality by defining words, by defining concepts, and by saying what people were allowed to think. So when you get, your, you get ourselves into a situation 
where a trans man says that having a baby doesn't make him any less of a man. It's funny, but it's also not funny at all because it shows how deeply advanced into a new kind of totalitarianism this culture has gone. Well, and it isn't uh, the whole play here, going back uh, 100 years to the Frankfurt School, the whole play is to undermine the family, right? I mean, the family is a bulwark right. against the state, so the idea that autonomy trumps ontology, which is what they're pushing, um, and uh, uh, this is all part of an effort to separate parents from their children and uh, prevent the family from being an impediment to state control. That's exactly true. And, you know, we're seeing today in public school systems in deep red America, for example, uh, where the schools are quietly passing rules saying that uh, if a child in the school, a minor child presents transgender, the school is not to let the parents know about it. So they're conspiring against parents to, to impose themselves between parents and their children while their children who couldn't take an aspirin at school without parental permission when their children are talking about wanting to get on hormones. Do you see any um, green shoots in the culture? They say that that's a positive development. That's something perhaps to build on. Uh, that's something perhaps that we can use to push back against the cultural Marxists. Yeah, I am really excited about the uh, classical Christian school movement. Uh, it's small now, but it's growing very fast. And briefly, it came out of homeschooling, frankly. But uh, it is a form of schooling that so far is being done only by Christians, as far as I know. But it goes back and teaches kids according to a medieval um, form of teaching, a uh, form of instruction, pedagogy. But it also deeply informs the kids, the students, about the roots of Western history. And going back to the Greek classics, the Roman classics, all the way up through to the present day. I spent yesterday afternoon reading Dante's Inferno aloud with my uh, with my 14-year-olds uh, because this was their assignment over the Christmas holiday. This is a small way to push back, but when you look at the headlines that we've seen this year in which the, the whole field of the classic has been taken over by the social justice warriors who are saying that Aristotle and Plato were all you know, dead white European males and that craziness. Go look at these little schools in places like yeah. where I live in Baton Rouge and, and elsewhere. They are really taking a countercultural stand and implanting a, a knowledge of and love for our heritage in the minds of kids. That's a green shoot. Rod Dreher, senior editor and blogger at the American Conservative, author of books including How Dante Can Save Your Life and The Benedict Option. Big fan of your work. Thanks so much for joining us on the game. It's always a pleasure. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, red diaper baby has a history degree from Harvard University. True story. Here's Mayor Pete five years ago talking to a group of students about American history and our founding documents like the Constitution. Similarly, the amendment process. They were wise enough to realize that they didn't have all the answers and that some things would change. Uh, A good example of this is 
something like slavery or civil rights. Uh, for uh, It's a, an embarrassing thing to admit, but the people who wrote the Constitution did not understand that slavery was a bad thing and did not respect civil rights. Uh, and yet they created a framework uh, so that as the generations came to understand that that was important, they could write that into the Constitution too. Yeah, that's untrue. That's untrue about the founders, uh, as any uh, academic worth of salt will tell you. Uh, and it, but it also speaks to this uh, larger effort ongoing to rewrite American history and the history of black Americans. And this is going to be uh, center, uh, front and center in 2020 because of the 1619 Project that the New York Times uh, has spearheaded. And it is using ahistorical essays being criticized, by the way, by historians across the political spectrum but trying to get these essays that perpetrate black victim victimology as an ideology, uh, trying to get those into K through 12 school systems to be part of the curriculum. Uh, one of the individuals who has been most outspoken against the redefinition of American history is Bob Woodson, who's the president and founder of the Woodson Center. And he joins us now. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleased to be here, and congratulations on your uh, show. Well, thank you. It's delighted. Thank you. It's delightful. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate it. And and so when you hear statements like that from uh, presidential candidates like uh, Pete Buttigieg, or you uh, read some of the op-eds from people saying similar things that uh, our professors at you know reputedly some of our best institutions of higher education, what's your reaction? Well, it's an abomination. You know, I'm a veteran of the civil rights movement, had led demonstrations in the 60s in Barrett Ruskin's hometown of Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I met Dr. King three months before he was assassinated. And it, it's really an abomination. It's really an example of the left using the rich heritage of the civil rights movement to promote a anti-American narrative and using the civil rights uh, struggle and, and accomplishments as the moral foundation of it. Hey. Uh, uh, in preparing for this, I went back to look at what, what, wonder what Dr. King would say if he were to read the 1619 report. And let me, if I could, read a quote from him from his letter from a Birmingham jail. He said, one day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at a lunch counter's they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. He further says, abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. It couldn't be stated any clearly that Dr. King and, and Frederick Douglass, all of the great leaders of the past, were clear that slavery was a America's birth defect. But every, every war that was fought, black Americans fought against uh, our enemies because we fought for America's promise. We knew that there was no other nation in the, in, in the world that held the promise for freedom and, and, and then America. And that's why what is currently being done is an abomination and an affront to this rich uh, heritage uh, just articulated by Dr. King. 
Uh, and and Bob, the uh, the sixteen nineteen project, um, it's ahistorical as you're describing, um, but there's also something else that I, I know bothers you about it, and that the, the what it uh, attempts to do in terms of perpetrating a certain image or disposition about Black Americans. It really does. It really, uh, it, like I say, it paints about uh, all whites are, are as a consequence, uh, victimizers and all blacks are victims. And then they say, well, the problems uh, uh, of our past, are the shadow of segregation and slavery is somehow an explanation for some of the decline that we're witnessing in our urban centers today, the black-on-black crime. More blacks are killed today in one year than was lynched in 80 years of the Klan. And that is a new phenomenon over the last five decades. Uh, There are all kinds of examples of of black Americans uh, during the 30s, the 1930 and 1940, when racism was enshrined in law, Bob, we have no I, political I, representation. I want to. I, I want to pick up those examples. Uh, let me hold you over and let's uh, pick up right where we're leaving off here. Bob Woodson from the Woodson Center joining us on the Dan Proft Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Bob Woodson, the president and founder of the Woodson Center, and we were talking about uh, the 1619 Project and uh, the response to it, both from academia as well as from the activist community. Uh, and, Bob, you were talking about uh, one of the problems you have with the, the project is that it paints all whites as victimizers and all blacks as victims, and you were about to uh, regale us with examples throughout the history of America where Despite uh, discrimination by law, subjugation by law, black Americans achieved unbelievable things. Yeah, between 1920 and 1940, uh, we started 5,300 what they call Rosenwald Booker T. schools, and we closed the education gap uh, in between 1920 and 1940 to within six months, from three years to six months. During the uh, 10 years of the Depression, the black-on-black marriage rate was higher than any other ethnic group in the country, and elderly people could walk safely in their neighborhoods without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. Uh, we, when we were denied access to hospitals, uh, hotels, we built our own. We had two areas of Durham, North Carolina, that was a black Wall Street, where the median income of blacks in 1940 was comparable to uh, white income uh, nationally. So there are all kinds of examples of blacks achieving because of the free enterprise system, because uh, we had a, a, a democracy, we were able to achieve. But the 1619, the message you're sending to black America is that you are impotent. In one sense, the 1619 embraces white supremacy. <laughs> In the sense of right, you, you don't you don't have agency to Black yeah. America. You don't have what it takes to achieve on your own until white people change. It's impossible for you to change. That to me is the essence of white supremacy. I, I wanted to to go back. You uh, quoted uh, Martin Luther King earlier uh, about what he would say about uh, America and about the founders. Um, this uh, from a president, a past president, speaking on uh, Martin Luther King Day. Suggesting what he thinks Martin Luther King would say. This is back 
uh, well, you'll, this is back uh, 25 years ago, so now you know who the president is. But uh, President Clinton said this on Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King would say, I fought for freedom, he would say, but not for the freedom of people to kill each other with reckless abandon, not for the freedom of children to have children and the fathers of the children to walk away from them and abandon them as if they don't amount to anything. I fought for people to have the right to work, but not to have whole communities and people abandoned. This is not what I lived and died for. Well, that, uh, boy, coming from Bill Clinton, that sounds like something very much, very much like something Bob Woodson would say, and uh, not what the 1619 Project and so many of the self-appointed black leaders uh, that are on TV say today. It's true. See, what, what is happening is the 1619 Project uh, are being in, people are being intimidated because this thin sliver of so-called black leadership. These are all black academics. I, I, felt, I say I have suffered my last guilty black and my last rich, angry black. <laughs> and, is that they they yeah. are the ones who perpetrate this this myth because it's profitable for them to do so. As long, but but the vast majority of black Americans are eager to hear inspirational examples that they can apply today. When white people were at their worst in the past, blacks were at their best. Well, people are motivated to change and improve their lives when you can share with them victories that are possible. And that's what we're trying to do uh, at the Woodson Center with our 1776 project. We want to offer an, an affirmative, inspirational alternative to 1619 that will say to the country and to school children, just because you are, you are raised under difficult circumstances, that your past does not define your future. And uh, in, in addition to, uh, in, in addition to, to uh, that perspective and telling people about the black history they don't know, you mentioned the Rosenwald schools. You, you also had a piece that you wrote for The Hill, thehill.com, that uh, ran on Christmas, talking about some of those grassroots leaders that you've worked with over the years and the models that they're creating at the local level that should be replicated and scaled. Can you give us an example or two? Yeah, uh, John Ponder, uh, a man who at age 45 was discharged from prison. He's been in and out of jail since he was 14. He came to Christ and decided to use his testimony to encourage others, and so he started a program in Las, in, in, in Las Va- Vegas, Nevada, called um, Hope for Prisoners. And he started with a small group of people and men and women coming out of prison, and in 10 years that has blossomed to 2,000 with only 6% recidivism rate, and 40% of the, of the, of the 400 mentors he has are police officers. So, and as a consequence, uh, just one, the, the leadership of one person through his personal witness is now leading thousands of people to lives of sobriety, uh, 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 crime-free lives, and he's doing so by promoting positive relationships between law enforcement with the result that, that uh, there's been a dramatic reduction in violent encounters between the police and minority communities. And there are other examples around the country uh, where there was 53 gang murders in a five-square black area in a, in a area of Washington, D.C. called Benning Terrace. But we at the Woodson Center um, helped five ex-offenders, again, 
applying their trust and confidence, and we brought the, the 16 young men who were these warring factions together, and for 12 years we didn't have a single gang-related murder. And so there are endless examples of, of when you support indigenous leadership armed with self-confidence that their destiny is determined by what they do to transform and redeem their own lives, and, and as a consequence, they can restore and redeem an entire community. There's where we ought to be focusing our, our investments of money instead of in government interventions or listening to the foolishness coming from these black uh, academics from the 1619 projects. They don't have a single solution to the problem. And, and that's what the American public needs to demand of anybody like the 1619 Project. Confront them with a question. Tell me how, as a consequence of what you propose, will anyone's life be improved? Bob Woodson, we're going to have to leave it there. Bob Woodson, president and founder of the Woodson Center. Thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prop Show. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. The GOAT match. Greatest of all time. Top three money winners in Jeopardy history. Tuesday, January 7th. Prime time. They square off in a three men enter, one man leave sort of contest. Whoever wins three games first wins a million bucks. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Ken Jennings, who won the most Jeopardy contests. James Holzhauer, who won the most Jeopardy money. And Brand Reuter, they're playing for a million bucks. The uh, two that lose get uh, a quarter million apiece. And uh, this is going to be great. And it's great that uh, Alex Trebek is uh, healthy enough to uh, preside over this titanic clash as well. This is going to be too, so much fun. Now, I'm uh, almost as big a Jeopardy fan as Cliff Clavin. Uh, you remember uh, Cliff Clavin's performance on Jeopardy 2. He is not in the uh, Jeopardy Tournament of Champions, the uh, abridged version, which is the three best ever. Um, but he, he could have been had it gone a little bit differently for him. We have three new contestants with us today, one of them at least, very eager to show how bright he is. So let's get right to it. Players, good luck. We're now going to play the first round of Jeopardy. And here are the categories for you. Civil servants. Stamps from around the world. Mothers and sons. Beer. Bar trivia. And finally, celibacy. Yeah, unfortunately, of course, he did. And uh, Alex Trebek turned out to be a nice little sitcom actor in that episode of Cheers. The dream board. I love the dream, the Cliff Clavin dream board. I was just thinking about my own. Um, maybe I like Pittsburgh Steelers greats, Chicago White Sox greats. A lot of greats of favorite sports teams. That's sort of an easy one. College nicknames, a uh, little-known fact, to borrow a Cliff Clavenism about me, I know the nickname for every college Division One college team, every Division One college team. Uh, so that would be one. And you can go ahead and test me if you want. Um, let's see what else. Maybe Bachelorhood on the morning show that I do in Chicago, there's a recurring segment called Why Dan Prof is Single, so I've got a lot of expansive knowledge about that topic. 
and maybe like Shakespearean sonnets or something, which sort of I think is connected to why Dan Proft is single if you're a and bachelorhood if you're an expert in Shakespearean sonnets or Shakespearean plays more generally, like Measure for Measure, um, some by ver- Vice Do Rise, others by Virtue Fall, for example, is one of my favorite Shakespearean Shakespearean observations. Uh, things like that. But anyway, I digress. Ken Jennings, Brad Rutter, James Holzhauer, starting Tuesday the 7th, prime time, and uh, going all the way into the following week, depending on whether or not uh, somebody gets to three games uh, before you need to, to need to get into the next week. So this is going to be a fun contest. I'm tuning in. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, survey uh, talked about earlier in the week, and we're going to talk about again. Released by the D.C.-based Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, 36% of millennials surveyed, survey says, say that they approve of communism, which is up by about 30% over just last year. More than one in three millennials say they approve of communism. Uh, 70% say they'd be likely to vote for a socialist candidate for president. Marion Smith, the executive director of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, said the historical amnesia about the dangers of communism and socialism is on full display in this year's report. Well, yeah, the amnesia, though, isn't necessarily among the millennials because to forget something, you had to know something in the first place. And the question is, do they even know 20th century history? Probably not. Not very well. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by a woman who started an organization to do some of what uh, Stephen Bainbridge is doing at UCLA, and that, but across the country, she is Morgan Zeggers. She is the founder of Young Americans Against Socialism. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is a very important topic, so I'm glad to see you guys are covering it. So, uh, so you know, you, you heard us talk about the survey. I'm sure you saw it. And, and you know, what's your reaction and uh, explanation, perhaps uh, including and maybe in addition to uh, what uh, Professor Bainbridge over at UCLA, UCLA Law pointed out? Well, from the perspective of Young Americans Against Socialism, uh, our nonprofit, we believe there is a very false narrative being created. And it comes from an equation. There's not just one reason. First of all, our generation is very ignorant. And that's not an a bad way. That's not an insult. I just mean by that, that we were not properly educated in the classroom about what socialism specifically is, what communism is, and what's the difference between that and just a a bad dictatorship. I think in the classroom, when we learned about Stalin, when we learned about Castro, 
uh, Mao Zedong. We weren't really taught. Those guys were socialists and communists that promised really great free things and a really great utopian society. And the result ended up in starvation and death and camps and uh, absolute devastation of the people. Instead, we're just taught they were very bad people. Our, the far left leaders and politicians are telling my generation, if you adopt our socialist policies, we will end up like Nordic Europe. They're saying capitalism is bad. We need socialism. But if we do, we won't end up like Venezuela. That's not socialism that we're talking about. We'll end up like Nordic Europe. And that's what we're trying to dispel here. Because when Bernie Sanders says, like he did on October 27th this year, we need to seize the means of production of the utilities industries in this country to fight climate change, that is socialism. That will make us like Venezuela. Our generation sees that and thinks it's going to make us like Denmark, which has a free market economy. Well, right. And and I'm glad you brought up... Uh the whole climate change and the uh, apocalyptic rhetoric around that, because it seems to me that's the hook into uh, millennials uh, that uh, the left is using uh, most pronouncedly. Absolutely. Uh, right, and you guys at, touched current. on it both. Uh, first of all, so when there's three tactics that I've noticed throughout history, socialists used to come to power, communists as well. First of all, they have to control the, na- the narrative, control the rhetoric, and they really are doing that well by convincing people that socialism will make us like Denmark and Nordic Europe, that freedom isn't freedom from an oppressive government. Instead, it's freedom from the responsibility of paying for things that you don't necessarily want to pay for. The second is creating a, a desire for wealth redistribution. And the far left has done that in my generation by saying, you see those evil rich people on Wall Street that have all that money, we're going to take it from them and give it to you to pay off your student loans because it's not fair that you have to pay so much, that you're in so much debt. We're going to tax the rich and we're going to give it to you. That creates that sense of they have something that I don't have. I'm going to use government force to take it. Boom. They've done it successfully. The third and final one is to create a sense of fear and urgency. And that's exactly what they're doing with climate change. So you guys touched on both of those topics. When you say the world's going to end in 12 years and the only solution to such a big problem is a big bill like the Green New Deal, which AOC's chief of staff admitted started as a socialist reconstruction of the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. And then later on, after it was written, they turned it into something about climate change. That's incredibly concerning. Because our generation thinks the world is ending in 12 years and that the evil Republicans and conservatives don't care about the planet and capitalism is killing us. It's no wonder that 38 percent support communism now and that 70 percent would vote for a socialist. Well, he, here's the thing, though, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating and it's, it's good that you founded this organization because it's never been easier to disseminate information. Uh, 1990, the Washington Post front page story. Carbon dioxide is the gas most responsible for the predictions Earth will warm on an average of by about three degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2020. Um, other outlets, uh, including you and, and scientists, uh, said could warm by as much as six degrees Fahrenheit. Well, uh, the uh, data is in and over 30 years, the United States, uh, the Earth has a, uh, and, and both the Earth and the United States have warmed by approximately one degree, so off by a factor of three to six, which is a, a pretty big margin to be off. And you would think that that would uh, spark some reconsideration of those predicting end times. But it seems to me that this information just doesn't get to a lot of the people that think uh, communism is a good idea and the world's going to end in 12 years. Absolutely. And two things on that. First of all, there are. Uh... There's a lot of people that say our generation could be 
the most freedom-loving and the most conservative generation out there because we have the world at our fingertips. We could go on Google and find any information that we want, and the history, the facts are on our side. So it matters that there's educational content and information on the web that is going to show the truth and is not going to have that false socialist narrative being pushed uh, by the far left in this country. Uh, the second thing is when you, the first tactic that I talked about earlier, the controlling the narrative, when you think of the messaging of conservatives versus the left, I see a video from Bernie Sanders online, and I kid you not, it says, am I really free if I have student loan debt? Am I really free right. if I have high health care costs? Am I really free if I only work my dead-end job just to get health care insurance? And the video says, no, you're not free. Freedom comes from economic freedom, and economic freedom comes from the Medicare for All and student loan forgiveness and free college and the Green New Deal, X, Y, Z. So the left uses very basic and powerful language to even tell our generation, you're not even free in America. And then the right, we're over here saying we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare for over a decade now, and, and we're going to talk about the markets, and we're going to talk about capitalism. It's not emotional. It's not powerful the way we talk about things. And if the right is better at messaging and provides more realistic solutions to show that we care about the issues our generation cares about, I think we would be more successful. But unfortunately, for the last few years, the right has left a vacuum, a massive hole when we didn't talk about environmental issues, we didn't talk much about the student loan crisis, we don't talk much about healthcare, or at least provide solutions for the failed Obamacare. And so when we left that vacuum, the, the far left swooped right in and filled it up, filled that void with very radical legislation. And at least to our generation, that seemed like they cared. They're not, they're not brainwashing them, they're heartwashing them. You never get to the, you never get to the brain. There was, there's a, exactly. a, a, um, a, my Christmas, the, the homily at the Christmas mass I attended, the, uh, uh, priest uh, had a good line that I'm going to steal and make my own. And he basically said that the longest trip in the world is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. Now he was talking, wow. he, he was talking about it from, you know, going from your, your head to your heart. I'm talking about it. Uh, go, it's a round trip. So that's really the longest trip in the world, your head to your heart and your heart back to your head. And what the left has done a good job of is having people volunteer to disconnect the head and the heart. Well, I do a lot of college speeches, and I was at NYU a couple of weeks ago, and I kid you not, probably half the crowd was from the left, and they came and they sat down and they had these smirks on their faces, and I it was very recent after the Victims of Communism poll came out, and so I decided to ask the audience some questions, and if you look more into the Victims of Communism poll, there's a statistic that said 43% of young people believe the Communist Manifesto better guarantees freedom and equality more so than the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And it says one in five young Americans believe that we would be better off if private property were abolished. And I asked those questions and people in the crowd raised their hands. They supported the Communist Manifesto over the Declaration of Independence. And they supported Karl Marx. They were true socialists and communists. And it really, it, it breaks my heart because I, I don't know if they understand what they're asking for i believe a majority don't i think like i said with the narrative i think the left is lying to them about what socialism actually is nobody not 70 percent of people my age would actually want to seize the means of production and have government controlled industries and that's what socialism is but unfortunately 70 percent would vote for a socialist but I, it's scary to me to wonder how many of those kids in that classroom understood what happened under stalin mao zedong cuba 
Castro and still want to say we need communism in the United States. Yeah, see, they're, they're not socialists and they're not communists. They're sentimentalists. Uh, Morgan Zeggers, founder of Young Americans Against Socialism. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us. Continue your good work. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, sad news, at least according to uh, CNN egghead Brian Stelter. And I'm not calling him an egghead because he's smart. I'm calling him an egghead because his head looks like an egg. He's definitely not smart. He's rather insufferable. Uh, he uh, tweeted out over the holiday that uh, the museum is closing today after 12 years in Washington. Uh, the museum, if uh, you're not familiar with it, was a uh, museum on the mall in Washington, D.C. that served as a, a, I mean, in CNN's own words, proud monument to journalism. Well, uh, it turns out uh, that journalists... Uh, don't have any more business sense when their enterprise is on the line than they do in commenting on your enterprises. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, director of the museum, uh, a former USA Today editor, said uh, the Washington building was uh, too ambitious, $450 million in construction. And the upkeep was too costly. The donations were too few. And it's 12 years in D.C. The museum was never able to break even. So uh, now it's going away. It was a, it's a monument to journalism, which really means a monument to particular journalists and uh, didn't have content pe- people were willing to pay for. Uh, sounds very much like some of the newspapers and the journalists that wrote for those newspapers that are going the way of the dodo bird as well. And for the same reasons, an inability to adapt. And ability to be resilient. Um, but the state, it just speaks to the state of journalism. I mean, I, the closing of the museum is just sort of a, a perfect metaphor for the time. Uh, as somebody responding to Brian Stelter's uh, tweet, maybe the uh, uh, mainstream media should have built the building in the shape of an arm padding its own back. And then uh, adding maybe that Covington kid suing the Washington Post for $250 million will buy it and keep it open, refurbish it a little bit, reposition its mission a little bit. But uh, the Chuck Todd's of the world, in addition to the obvious ones, the people, nobody, very few people take seriously the Jim Acosta's. But, I mean, the uh, uh, that, that yapping terrier Chuck Todd who hosts Meet the Press is supposed to be a serious person. I mean, Meet the Press is a television public policy institution we're supposed to this is where the the deep thinkers and the important people converse about the important things is it Uh, chuck todd uh recently uh on uh the state of journalism he had a conversation with dean beckett among others beckett is the uh, editor of the new york times listen to this exchange about uh uh the well the two of them starting with chuck todd sort of lamenting the state of uh journalism and its profitability i mean our job um and it's a hard job but our job and i think our newsrooms have been sort of rebuilt to do this is to a very aggressively sort out fact from fiction 
um, and to very aggressively work to make sure that people trust us and understand that that's our job. I mean, Marty has a has a very extensive fact-checking operation, yes, as do we. Um, and that those things didn't exist three or four years ago. And they're, they're an acknowledgment that one of the jobs of the news media is to sort through all of the... Um, BS, if I can say that, yeah. um, and come to some and come do the kind of deep reporting that we all grew up doing to come to some sort of understanding of what's actually happening in the world. And I think that's one of our largest new jobs. Dean, do we have to market the truth? And what I mean by this is, you know, he's out there a lot, essentially delegitimizing our professions. We don't fight back like a candidate. We don't fight back like a campaign. Um, do we need to start campaigning around the country to say, no, 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 here's how facts work. Here's, here's what reporting is. Here's what journalists are. Oh, by the way, if I utter a fact on TV on purpose, I get fired. If you utter a fact on TV on purpose, you get fired? Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm sure that was a Freudian slip on behalf of Chuck Todd. He meant to say if I utter a falsity, I assume, on TV, I get fired. Hardly. Hardly that's the case. How many falsities of Chuck Todd's can you point to on a weekly basis? The, uh, the whole idea that they are the uh, guardians of the truth uh, as well as the communicators of it. They do the filtering and they present the God's honest truth. Does anybody believe that? It's, it's just a marketing problem that the Beltway Press Corps has. Just marketing. It's not the fact that, for example, one of, another one of their leading lights, David Remnick, over at The New Yorker, announced on the occasion of Trump's victory in 2016 that uh, the normal rules of journalism have been suspended. We are to be advocates against this administration. Now, I'm in the Finley-Peter Dunn camp that the job of a journalist is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. They should be skeptics of every politician and every presidential administration. They should be asking the tough questions and probing and uh, and not accepting press releases and pat answers from spokesbeings. However, that's not what they do. It's not what Chuck Todd does on Meet the Press. It's not what they're doing now. It wasn't what they were doing during the Obama years, just to provide a little bit of uh, context over the decade just past. They were unabashed cheerleaders and... Uh, purveyors of Obama agitprop during his time in the White House. And they are political. They are running a campaign, despite what Chuck Todd says. They are political opponents of Trump. Not a check. Not a check. Political opponents. And so this this whole uh, line of bull jive that Dean Beckett and Chuck Todd are selling, fewer and fewer people aren't buying. They cater to uh, a particular audience, and they know that's how they can pay their bills, by catering to that particular audience, and that's what they're going to do. And they also have a perspective that they want to drive, stories that they want to tell, and they're going to work backwards to put them together, no matter how flimsy they are. Uh, Matt Taibbi, a man of the left, journalist, Rolling Stone, uh, a while back he was on Hill TV, and uh, you know at least he's... You know, calling balls and strikes as it were here and suggesting, you know, look, um, everybody knows that there's no such thing as objectivity. So why not just level with people rather than pretend you're some sort of uh, race of superhumans 
that uh, have no opinions and no views and set all your biases aside, don't play favorites, have no sacred cows. You're just here to be honest scriveners of the day's events. Nobody is buying that. You know, it's funny. I think only Americans in the late 20th century, early 21st century take the concept of objectivity seriously. I mean, when you think about it, there's no such thing as as an unbiased presentation of anything. Every every decision that you make editorially reflects some kind of editorial choice, whether you're putting the headline in big letters, small letters, whether the mm-hmm. photograph is large or small, who's in the photograph, how high up the, the sources are. So you're always making a judgment and telling the reader what you think about things. The question is whether you're upfront about it or not. And I think, you know, in other countries where the tradition is more, you know, first person style journalism or, it, you know, it's more openly political, um, people are aware of it more. I think just the audiences have to understand that whether they're watching the dry third person tone of the New York Times or, you know, something very opinionated like Sean Hannity, there's always that bias there and you just have to be aware of it. Yeah, the difference is Sean Hannity doesn't pretend to be a journalist and is upfront. It's the 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 fourth estate types like Chuck Todd who don't practice the transparency they preach. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and of course, uh, Times Person of the Year, Greta Thunberg. And perhaps uh, the quote of the year as it pertains to climate change and uh, how central that apocalyptic, uh, the apocalyptic predictions surrounding that issue have become in the presidential campaign and will continue to be. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. Uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, young Veruca Salt Thunberg there can be a little happier and less, uh, sad in 2020. I doubt it though, because of course there's, uh, a fawning media and, uh, percentage of the population that has elevated her to, uh, I don't know, Joan of Arc status. Uh, so how's, uh, the science piece of it that she mentioned, how's that actually checking out? Uh, In 1990, the Washington Post reported, front page story, carbon dioxide is the gas most responsible for predictions. The Earth will warm on average by about three degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2020, uh, saying additionally it could warm by as much as six degrees Fahrenheit. And, of course, based on that prediction, there's all sorts of devastation that will be wrought on the environment as well as humanity. Well, we're here in 2020. How'd that prediction turn out? According to NASA, the Earth warmed approximately one degree Fahrenheit during those 30 years. So by 2020, one degree. So off by a factor of three to six, which is pretty substantial. 
And it speaks to this issue that uh, remarkable that people don't want to contemplate, which is that uh, these models continue to be wrong. I mean, way wrong. The uh, planet is a lot more resilient than uh, they anticipate. Uh, there are discoveries that were unanticipated. So, for example, uh, 30 years ago, the uh, president of Exxon said by the year 2020, there wouldn't be enough domestic oil left to keep me interested. That's what he said. New York Times reporting. Uh, but uh, it turned out that he couldn't have predicted uh, the technology that allows for deeper drilling. He couldn't have predicted uh, new oil reserves that were discovered. Uh, he couldn't have predicted the fracking technology. That uh, At the time, the Permian Basin was being drained dry, so he had every reason to believe we were running out of oil, said uh, one uh, former New York Times reporter who uh, who memorialized those quotes from that Exxon president. Yeah, right. Because uh, people that uh, think they've got the future figured out, uh, these modern-day Nostradamuses turn out not to be so much. Just things you can't anticipate. Uh, this, and this is not to suggest that being a poor steward of the environment, uh, trying to promote uh, innovations that, uh, uh, that are less destructive and more productive. But this has been going on for a long time. People have just such a lack of institutional knowledge. There's a good piece at Human Progress, humanprogress.org, The Long History of Eco-Pessimism by Pierre DeRocher and Joanna Zermack. And uh, they go through it all. And, uh, I mean, just to give you a quick examples, uh, 1939, The Rape of the Earth, A World Survey of Soil Erosion. British writers were uh, warning that as a result solely of human mismanagement, the soils upon which men have attempted to found new civilizations are disappearing. Erosion was going to end humanity in 1939, according to these British writers. In 1948, ecologist William Vogt published the, his uh, Road to Survival, which was to become the biggest-selling environmental book until Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in the 60s. He argued in that book that man had taken the bounty of the earth and made little or no return overgrazed and overcropped, the removal of animals and plants, carried away important soil minerals, civilizations were at risk. His colleague in the same year, Our Plundered Planet by Henry Fairfield Osborne, he warned that environmental destruction would soon prove more deadly than the Second World War. Uh, so they're not interested in um, correcting the record or admitting wrongdoing because, as these authors argue, at the root of eco-pessimism is always a deep-seated disillusion with technological, economic, and social progress. They're neo-Luddites of sort. So faith-like is the disillusionment, so ingrained is the misanthropy that no amount of good news can dispel them. And no amount of data can dispel them. And no amount of bumping up the predictions against the reality can dispel them. It is a religion. As Chesterton observed... Once people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And there's a lot of godless uh, climate hysterics that believe in Gaia as their small G God. This is the Dan Proft Show. This uh, piece in the Washington Post where a professor from Denison University, allegedly a scholar with the Public Religion Research Institute, tried to explain why evangelicals and other 
persons of faith, Christians in particular, fear that uh, Democrats would strip away their rights if they were in power. He uh, references some survey, survey that was done by a uh, political scientist this past spring, interviewing a thousand U.S. Protestants, finding 60 percent believe that atheists would not allow them First Amendment rights and liberties if they could. Uh, More specifically, the survey asked uh, whether they believed atheists would prevent them from being able to hold rallies, teach, speak freely, run for public office. Uh, 60 percent essentially said they would. Uh, He offers uh, explanations, the professor. Uh, The first is because that's what they're hearing quite explicitly from conservative media, religious elites, partisan commentators, some politicians, including the president. So it's not actually true. It's just what you're hearing from conservatives, you know, in media. The second is an inverted golden rule, meaning a white evangelical Protestants express low levels of tolerance for atheists, which leads them to expect intolerance for atheists from atheists. I should say so. (laughs) So one, it's conservative. The only reason you perhaps fear a Democrat socialist in power who are anti-Christian and anti-evangelical, perhaps particularly the only reason you believe that they would infringe upon your religious liberty rights is one, uh, you've been gaslighted by conservative media or two. It's actually you projecting your intolerance onto them. Is that right? Or do you believe that uh, Democrats uh, pick uh, one of the presidential candidates, along with Nancy Pelosi and, say, Chuck Schumer, if they were in charge, if that was the troika in charge of our federal government, do you think that they would move to curtail your religious liberty, your rights of conscience? It's a big question. Examples of intolerance? When DiFi says to Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation hearing for the appellate court, federal appellate court, that uh, her faith lives loudly within her, Right. Her Catholic faith lives loudly within her. And that was a concern for DiFi. When you have the left piling on Jack Phillips, Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, going all the way to the Supreme Court and after being victorious, still being harassed. Yeah. So and and the and uh, and other examples of florists and photographers that do not want to be forced to participate in a religious or civil ceremony that they just don't support. And this it was in part um, what Senator Jim Langford said over the weekend at Meet the Press. Jim Langford uh, being interviewed along with Chris Coons talking about how they can work together bipartisan, blah, blah, blah. The uh, Jim Langford, though, on the president, the president's character and the importance that faith plays in his life and in his decision making as United States senator. I, I said very early on in the uh, campaign time period when people asked me in 2016, what are you looking for? I said, well, I always look for a president who can be a role model. I don't think that President Trump as a person is a role model for a lot of different youth. That's just me personally. I don't like the way that he tweets. Uh, some of the things that he says, his word choices at times are not my word choices. Uh, he comes across with more New York City swagger uh, than I do from the Midwest and definitely not the way that I'm raising my kids. Saying that, there are policy areas that we agree on. Uh, and when we agree on those things, we work on those things together. Uh, but it's also been a grand challenge to be able to say for a person of faith, uh, for a person who believes that there is a right way to go on things, I, I wish that he did, and he was more of a role model in those areas. Now, saying all that, uh, on the area of life, where I'm very passionate about uh, of the issues of abortion, for instance, he's been tenaciously pro-life. Uh, he's focused on uh, putting people around him that are very, very focused on religious liberty, not honoring a particular faith, but honoring any person of any faith to go be able to live and practice that faith and to have respect for that. That's helpful for any person of faith uh, to be able to say, give me the space to be able to live my faith and to be able to put people into the administration that will also allow that and encourage that. 
So for people of faith, uh, it's a bit of a conundrum at times. Uh, that I look at some of the moral decisions that he's made and go, I disagree with that. But he's also been very, very protective of areas like life and very, very protective of areas of religious liberty to be able to allow people to be able to live their faith out. And I, I'm sure that there are many Christians that, that, that do feel it's a bit of a conundrum uh, from time to time, depending on what the president is saying. But, but also, you know, what has he done in uh, advance of religious liberty? That's the measure, right? Politicians are means to policy ends. That's it. You don't have to fall in love with them. You don't have to say this is who you should grow up uh, to be like. I, yeah, I think Lankford is right. but And I also think Lankford, without saying it, is basically conceding the point that those on the left, their uh, rhetoric notwithstanding about uh, tolerance, have very little tolerance for people of faith, particularly evangelical Christians and Christians generally. Very little tolerance. This story out of uh, London is interesting. England and Wales have marked a new era in which heterosexual couples can choose to have a civil partnership instead of a marriage. The change mandated by Britain's Supreme Court took effect right before the first of the year. It was a groundbreaking case brought by a guy and a woman who uh, didn't want any sort of religious connotation to their partnership because, you know, marriage is patriarchal and religious. So, I mean, think about what's happened in the last 10 years as we're you know, marking the end of the decade. We went from all the postmodern left want is civil unions for gay people to the redefinition of marriage and now to the redefinition of civil unions. Talk about coming full circle. Deborah in Arlington Heights. Yeah, you know, it boils down to two words, forced acceptance. And I find it really ironic that the people that are supposed to be practicing diversity and inclusion and tolerance say that somebody that has a different belief system, they label them as intolerant when that couldn't be anything further from the truth according to what they're trying to say about having tolerance for other people and their beliefs. Thanks for the call, Deborah. Right. Tolerance equals acceptance equals celebration. They're synonyms. Ken and Aurora. Beto O'Rourke, you know, is on yeah. record talking about taking a nonprofit status away from um, people, from organizations that don't support um, uh, you know, pro-abortion and LGBT uh, issues. Matt, um, I think I view the left's view of religious liberties as you can believe what you want as long as you don't practice it or do anything to uh, in public. Believe it in your house and then don't practice it out in public. Right, right. Thanks for the call, Matt. Or you can practice it in the way that uh, a mannequin Pete, that red diaper baby mannequin running for president, practices it, which is to uh, redefine scripture to make it conform with leftist orthodoxy randall in northwest indiana i was gonna say me i'm a christian and i've been a christian for years my dad who's a proclaimed atheist but he is a conservative has seen years back when obama was me and him and talked about it i could see how the mainstream media and the left is on a war for Christianity. Now it's his terms. There's a war fought against Christianity, and he's an atheist, and he can see it. Thanks for the call, Randall. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, the year cannot end. We cannot close the book on 2019 until we get a year in review from Dave Barry 
a great uh, Miami Herald satirist, uh, my favorite, month by month. Just give you some of the highlights. Uh, in, in summary of the year 2019, Dave Barry, we cannot keep up with all the eventfulness. Every day we'd wake up to learn that some new shocking alleged thing had allegedly happened. And before we had time to think about it, the political media complex, always in outrage condition red, would explode in righteous fury with side A and side B hurling increasingly nasty accusations at each other and devoting immense energy to thinking up ways to totally destroy the other side on Twitter, a medium that has the magical power to transform everything it touches, no matter how stupid it is, into something even stupider. <laughs> Not a bad summary. Uh, some month-by-month uh, excerpts from Barry. March. Bob Mueller finally delivers his report to Attorney General William Barr, who promises to release it to the public as soon as we've blacked out the sex parts. The cable news network prepares for the release by bringing in panels of distinguished legal authorities to declare that the report means exactly the opposite of whatever the distinguished legal panels on the enemy networks are declaring it means. I tell you, it you know it's difficult to write the comedy these days. So give Dave Barry some credit. Uh, he goes on in March. The Iowa State Legislature, cons- legislature considers a bill that would fund the construction of a border wall around the state to stop the influx of Democratic presidential hopefuls, now estimated at several dozen a day. It's a humanitarian crisis, says one legislator, his voice rising in alarm. They're swarming all over the state, bringing, barging into pancake breakfasts. Many of them die within days from pancake bloat, but they just keep coming. Uh, he uh, uh, skip ahead to May. Robert Mueller resigns as special counsel, saying that he plans to return to private life and whimper in the fetal position. In his final statement, he clears up any lingering confusion about his investigation by noting that the Justice Department cannot charge the president with a federal crime, adding... Not that I am or am not saying or not saying that the president did or did not do anything that was or was not illegal or not. (laughs) Right. Uh, In July, in other political news, an exhausted Robert Mueller makes his 237th appearance before the House Kabuki Theater Committee. And the entire nation tunes in, except those parts of the nation located outside of Washington, (laughs) D.C. Mueller says little that is new, generally leaving his answers to yes and no. And when an aide pokes him awake, ouch. Under questioning, Mueller seems surprisingly unfamiliar with his own team's report, at one point stating in response to a question that he had never heard of any Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Uh, And uh, December, get to the end of the year. Uh, On a positive note, Democrats, Republicans in Congress able to set aside their bitter political differences long enough to reach an agreement, enabling them to continue spending insane amounts of money they do not have because, darn it, sometimes you just have to put the country first. Good stuff from Dave Barry. I'll tweet it out at Dan Proft. Encourage you to read his year in review. It's always great comic relief. And, of course, we could use some comic relief on a daily basis in this political and cultural environment. Thank you for joining me on my inaugural edition of the Dan Proft Show. I hope you'll stay tuned in the days to come. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.